0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Republican Joe O'Day wants to be Colorado's next U.S. Senator.
1: I'm going to be an advocate for a balanced budget. That's why I'm going to Washington, is we need to get big government out of the way. We need to cut it back. And that's how you help working Americans. They don't need more government. They need less.
0: We'll talk about inflation and energy independence also his position on access to abortions.
1: I think early on in the pregnancy, there's two lives involved, and so we need to have respect for both of those. That's not a decision that I think I should make for someone else. I think that remains with that her decision. And so I'm going to stay where I'm at, I'm not going to budge, it's, it's important to me.
2: The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora.
3: Glenwood Springs. Grand
2: Junction. Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. Primary voting is underway via mail in ballots. Election day itself in Colorado is Tuesday, and there are key races within the Republican Party. That includes deciding who will face Democratic incumbent U.S. Senator Michael Bennett in the general election. One person who wants the job is Joe O'Day, he's a businessman the owner of a construction company, and a first-time candidate. We spoke last Thursday. Joe, welcome to the program.
1: Shandra, thanks so much for having me on today. I really appreciate being here with you. It's great to meet you.
0: Let's start with gun rights. The U.S. Senate right now is on the verge of passing bipartisan gun legislation. At the time of this interview, the final bill has not been written But senators say it includes giving money to states to spend on red flag style laws, like we have here in Colorado, where someone can ask a judge to take guns from those who are a danger to themselves or others. It is also said to include enhanced background checks and funding for school safety and mental health programs. What is your position on this compromise?
1: Well, it's encouraging to see people talking about some things that I've been talking about for quite a while. You know you can't legislate evil criminals they get guns and then they do tragic things and they're and they're sad it's 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 part of our society. We've got the school shootings going on, but in addition to that, we've got guns all over the United States, and some of the places with the most laws have the highest shooting rates and so uh, the one thing I do like about this legislation is they're beginning to talk about more cops. They're beginning to talk about mental health. And I think those are the issues here that we need to embrace. Uh, I've been an advocate that we need cops in our schools. Uh, I think that's that's a must-have. I've also been an advocate that we've got to start doing more for mental health uh, we need to start making sure that people are getting the help that they need. But I'm also I'm I'm an anti-crime guy. I, I believe we need to put people away. If somebody's making a threat online, if somebody's doing something that would indicate that they're a problem, then we need to get them off the street. And I, I've been there. I've I've also been an advocate for uh, Laura Carno um, here in Colorado. She's running a a, a program called Faster. That allows teachers that want to conceal carry to get the right training, to train with their sheriff's department or their police department so that, you know, they, they can be the first line of defense if somebody comes into these schools. And so that's where I'm at with that. I, there's a lot of details that will have to come out for that bill before I could have an opinion on it. But generally speaking, we don't need more laws. What we need is more cops. And that's where I'm going to land.
0: Yeah, that brings me to this other question. What other ways would you like the federal government to address mass shootings? Is it just the cops in schools or what other suggestions do you have?
1: Well, I, I think we can start there, and that's something we can do very quickly. If you look at our airports, they're fortified. If you look at our banks, they're fortified. We we protect our, our money, we protect our travel now. I don't see why we can't protect our schools. You know, having more law enforcement around the schools, I generally I think we need more law enforcement, period. If you look at the 30% hike in crime that's occurred here in the last year and a half, a lot of it has to do with we, we've defunded some of the police departments. We've demoralized them. We haven't given them the the resources that they need. And in addition to that, we haven't held criminals accountable. Um, we've got DAs that uh, have lessened the penalties. Right now, Colorado is leading the nation in auto theft. And that's because we're not holding these people accountable. I've talked to some of the Some of the police and they tell me that uh, there was a guy that stole eight vehicles, six in one jurisdiction and, and two in another. And he was back on the street in about six hours. You know, what's there's a problem there. We need to hold people accountable or they're going to do it again.
0: The bipartisan compromise on gun control needs 60 votes to overcome the filibuster. Some say the filibuster prevents the Senate from getting more done. Do you think it should be done away with?
1: No, I would never take the filibuster out. Uh, that's, that's part of the guard that we have in place to make sure that we have a, a majority. And we, and it gives the, the minority a little bit of a voice. And so I would, I would not advocate getting rid of the filibuster at all.
0: If it remains, what can be done to ensure the Senate can get more done?
1: Well, it means we got to have conversation. It means we got to have good ideas on both sides of an issue. And it means we need to work hard to, to find a compromise that you know, moves our country forward. And, and so that's what, that's what it takes. Uh, it doesn't let anybody really control the process. It makes sure that we have good, thoughtful dialogue, debate over any issue. And so that, I believe it's, it's, it's very much part of our Constitution and should be left in, in place.
0: Now on to abortion. You have said in the past that you don't support a total ban on abortion including early in a pregnancy or for certain medical emergencies. With the Supreme Court predicted to overturn Roe v. Wade any day now, would you support a federal bill that ensures abortion access? Uh,
1: It it would depend on the bill. Um, What Chuck Schumer, uh, Michael Bennett actually voted for Chuck Schumer's bill here, uh, what, a month ago, uh, and that I thought that bill was reckless. It it was uh, abortion up to and including the day of birth, and and I disagree with that. I believe that we should have limits on late term abortion. Um, I believe there sh- we shouldn't use tax dollars. I believe we shouldn't force religious hospitals to do a procedure they don't want to do. Uh, I believe we we also should have parental notification, but I don't believe. Uh, that we should have a total ban. I believe early on in the pregnancy that, that should be between a woman and her doctor and, and her conscience. That That's her decision. And our government shouldn't be involved in that. So that that's where I land on that issue.
0: I think you described it at the Western Conference as a decision between a person and their God.
1: I, I did. Government shouldn't be involved in that. If we want to make strides, if we want to end abortion... My thought is we need to do more for adoption. Um, it's a deeply personal issue for me. I'm adopted at birth, and uh, so my, my mom and dad uh, uh, were so kind to take me in. But you know, my biological mother, she must have been brave to back in the 60s to carry the term. I never did meet her, but I have a lot of respect for that. And so I would advocate that we do more to make adoption easier here, whether it's tax credits, whether funding for that, I, I, I just think that's, that's how you solve it.
0: As you mentioned, part of your personal story is that you are adopted and those who oppose abortion might argue that you are an example of why abortion should be illegal. What do you say?
1: Well, I, I, th- I think early on in the pregnancy there's two lives involved. and so we need to have respect for both of those. That's not a decision that I think I should make for someone else. I think that remains with that her decision. And so I'm going to stay where I'm at. I'm not going to budge. It's it's important to me.
0: Would you say your stance on abortion has evolved over the years?
1: Well, I, I think, you know, my wife and I have prayed over it. We, we have just one child and we had a lot of issues trying to have a second child. And so uh, it gave us a perspective that uh, maybe some other, uh, other people don't have. So um, I, I would say it's something that my wife and I have prayed over.
0: You've talked a lot on the campaign trail about inflation, and voters have said consistently that their biggest concern this cycle is the rising cost of living. In fact, at the 2022 Western Conservative Summit, you said you will, and I quote, prosecute the case against Biden and Bennett on inflation. What does that mean?
1: Well, look, everybody's talking about the price of gas. It's over $5 now here in Colorado everybody's talking about the price of food. It's up 30%. There's a lot of things that aren't on the shelves right now. Everybody's talking about inflation because it's it's affecting all of us. At a $460 a month is what the average family is spending more than they were two years ago. So it's affecting households. They're having to start to make choices between things that they want to do and things that they have to pay for. And so it's the number one issue. I believe that big government is responsible for it. And it, it happens, in, in my opinion, three ways. Big government spending. We, we need to reduce the spending to pre-COVID levels. The $1.9 trillion rescue plan that got put in place back a year ago, March, uh, has inflated everything. And a lot of that money is not done getting into the market yet. There's there's quite a bit of it that was appropriated, but hasn't been spent yet. We need to quit the spending. That's how you start to help get these prices under control. The second thing was, I believe it's time to overhaul the Fed. The, the Fed was asleep at the wheel. Those people that are there, if they were working for me, I'd have fired them. Six months late, well, they came up with a new word that I had to go look up called transitory transitory uh, inflation, which I didn't, a uh, new word, right? And, and so they should have started to escalate the, uh, interest rates six months earlier than they did. Maybe they could have got ahead of this a little bit. And, and then the last thing is our oil and gas policies nationally and state. Uh, we're not letting people drill, um, which anytime you stifle the supply, then you're going to increase the price. And that's what's going on right now. So we've got to get these federal leases back to where good, clean Colorado companies can drill for gas and oil here and go back to work. That's how you get in front of inflation. And, and it's, it's not, that, not that difficult.
0: But what can a single senator do about inflation?
1: A single senator can start to take some ideas to Washington on how we do the three things I just described and and start to build a a team, start to build uh, constituents that understand that this is how we're going to get in front of this inflation. And that's what I'll do when I get there.
0: In one of your commercials, you say that you plan to, quote, get Washington focused on working Americans. In that same ad, you also say that you will push for lower taxes, less regulation, and an economic recovery that benefits working people. As Senator, exactly how do you plan to accomplish all of that?
1: Well, as I said, we need to return the, the spending to pre-COVID levels. We need to get that back into a balanced budget. Uh, I'll focus hard on a balanced budget. I'll focus on deregulation. I think that's the number one thing crushing working Americans and businesses here in Colorado. You know, I I spent my last 35 years in business and I call it a death by a thousand cuts. Uh, Every day there's some new regulation, whether it's at the local, the state or the federal level that has to do with either me and my business or our employees. And so when you're constantly regulating things, that drives the cost of everything up. And so we need to focus on getting government out of the way so that our economy can flourish. I believe the more favorable you make it to work here in Colorado, in the United States, the more people will go to work. And so the entire uh, revenue stream will grow because more people are back at work. And so that's how I'll attack it.
0: So before covid the budget was not balanced. So why do you specifically say pre-COVID levels?
1: Well, because a lot of COVID has caused some additional spending that we, sh- we don't need to have anymore. We, we just need to end that. Um, I- I'm going to be an advocate for a balanced budget. And that's why I'm going to Washington is we need to get big government out of the way. We need to cut it back. And that's how you help working Americans. They don't need more government. They need less.
0: The Expanded Child Tax Credit was a pet project championed for years by current Democratic Senator Michael Bennett. It provided families up to $300 per child per month, and it was estimated to have kept 3 million American children out of poverty. It has since expired, but Senator Bennett is still working to make it permanent. Do you support the Expanded Child Tax Credit?
1: Well, I I support the concept I think uh, I think the intent is good, uh, but I don't support uh, given families that are making two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year that kind of a child tax credit. I think we need to make it directed at lower income, those people that need it. And so I would advocate that uh, if, if we do have a tax credit, that it would go to people that of need and not people of excess.
0: Is part of your concern that that tax credit would contribute to inflation?
1: It is, it, it, and it probably would. But if it was more directed at lower income, then it would have less of an effect.
0: Republican Senate candidate Joe O'Day is our guest. He's in a primary race with Ron Hanks. We'll hear from him tomorrow. A couple of clarifying notes. The filibuster is part of Senate procedure and is not included in the U.S. Constitution. Also, regarding his claims about places with the most gun laws having the highest shooting rates, a Stanford University study found that states with strict gun laws have lower rates of gun deaths among children and teenagers. Let's move on to climate change. Something, as you know, is at the top of mind for many Coloradans. You do not dispute the science of climate change, but you oppose the Democrats' approach calling it, quote, top-down government mandates. Please explain what you mean by that.
1: Well, we we need a, a, we need to be mindful that we can't cut off fossil fuels until we have an electrification system that's in place, and we don't have that. Out of the one point eight million cars that are on Colorado roads owned by Colorado people, only fifty thousand of those are electric, and so. For us to think that we can quit drilling, quit supplying oil and gas until we have an acceptable electric plan that's in place that's clean is is, is kind of nonsense to me. When you talk to oil and gas people here in Colorado, we have the cleanest gas molecule in the world. So it makes absolutely no sense to me to not allow drilling here in Colorado, but to import Uh, from Venezuela or from Russia or some of these despots and and, uh, uh, dictators that are across the world, that makes absolutely no sense. And it doesn't make sense for our climate either because the act of transporting actually puts more emissions than if we had it here. And so I think we just need to be smart about it. It, it, it's, It's setting up a mandate to stop something before you have a plan to backfill it doesn't make any sense to me at all.
0: You've called on President Biden, as you said, to increase production of oil and gas at home. How do you square increased fossil fuel production with the realities of climate change?
1: Well, I think both are important, right? Nobody wants uh, nobody wants uh, bad air. Nobody wants you know dirty water. There's but there's balance to everything. Um, I don't understand how Biden thinks that importing it from Venezuela or from somewhere else um, to the to the United States is cleaner than actually drilling here. Um, we haven't changed the, the demand, uh, but we're stifling the supply. And so in my mind, it's cleaner to have the good regulations that we have in place here that are over a lot of the oil and gas and a lot of the drilling to where they, they make sure that, you know, it's clean when they do it uh, as opposed to in China or Asia where they have no regulations at all. So I think if you stand back and look at it, it's uh, my plan would be better for climate change than what Biden's plan is. How so? Well, because you'd be doing it here in the United States where you can control and make sure that they're doing it correctly and they're not uh, putting uh, – more emissions into our our air, you can you can control it here. Well, you can't control it overseas. Venezuela doesn't have any regulations in place.
0: Perfect segue into foreign policy. <laughs> to date, the U.S. has given roughly fifty-four billion dollars to Ukraine to aid the country in its efforts against Russia. Do you support that spending?
1: Well. I, I first off I support Ukraine. I think, you know, if you look at what the uh uh the Ukrainian people have done there defending their freedom, defending their country, uh it, it's been very inspiring. Um they've they've fought a good fight. I thought that uh Biden was asleep at the wheel on this. I've said that earlier. Uh if he had taken some of the assets that we left in Afghanistan and given those to the Ukrainian people, Uh, would have saved uh, a lot of taxpayer money here, and they would have gotten assets that they could use uh, to defend their country. That said, um, they passed, I believe it's a $40 billion uh, bill here not too long. Uh, I thought that was excessive. I wouldn't have passed that large of a bill uh, to help the Ukrainians. Um, I also thought Rand Paul was on the right track when he said we need oversight within the bill. There wasn't any oversight in the bill. Uh, I don't ever think you should go let people spend money without keeping track of it. That's part of the problems that we have here in the United States. Um, so I, I, I do support Ukraine. I, I don't believe we need boots on the ground there, but uh, we, need to, we need to assist them.
0: So you do not support sending U.S. troops to help Ukrainian
1: forces? No, not at this point. Uh, NATO can step in. They, they need to do their job. Um, you know, there's plenty of nations over there that are very close to this issue, and, and they should be the ones supporting Ukraine as well.
0: So is there any scenario in which you would support sending U.S. troops to Ukraine?
1: You know, at this point, I don't see the need to it, but things can change. So I, I, I would leave the option open. Uh, you know, somebody somebody has to make the decision when things happen. And so that's that's where I'd leave it.
0: Your opponent in the primary, Ron Hanks, has been a vocal proponent of the big lie, that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. But you reject that. How do you plan to win over staunch conservatives who believe what you have described as conspiracies being pushed by others in the Republican Party?
1: Look, I, I'm, I've been consistent with my message you know Biden's our president. He's a lousy president. I think he's doing a lousy job. Look at look at the inflation. Look at the status of of crime here in the United States. Look at our border. Look at Ukraine. Look at Afghanistan. He's he's a lousy president, and, and I've been an advocate of that. And and that's why I'm running. Is we need to we need to uh, put a stop to Biden's agenda. And that's how you do it. Is you replace a senator. Um, I'm not looking backwards at. at at what happened. That's not that's not important. What's important to working Americans here in Colorado and and across the country is looking forward. It's making sure we get control on this inflation. It's reducing the price of gas. It's reducing the grocery bill, making sure that we get things back on the on the shelves and getting our country moving forward. And and I've that's that's why I'm running. That's that's what's important and that's what's important to the electorate here in, in Colorado.
0: Back to the issue of the border, at the 2022 Western Conservative Summit, you said you support building a wall, and you said just get a contractor. Can you speak more on that?
1: Well, sure. We've we've already paid for many of the materials. Uh, they're stacked up, sitting along the border, and and you know Biden's agenda came in and stopped the wall. We need to we need to finish the wall so that we can protect our border. Uh, we've got almost 2 million illegals that have come across. Um, we've got drug cartels that are pushing fentanyl straight up I-25. We've got human trafficking. And then you factor in these cartels. Um, and I've got guys that are here legally. They've been with me, uh, some of them, 20 years. And they've been working on uh, green, green card visas. Uh, they're here legally. They're paying taxes. And they can't get through the process of our immigration system. So the second thing after you fix that border is to streamline, uh, put a process in place that people can touch, people can see so that this, they can get their citizenship. Um, and, and so those are the things that I think we need to do with both the border and immigration.
0: Is the issue of the border a primary concern in Colorado?
1: It is. When you When you talk to people that work for me, They're worried about these cartels coming into their neighborhoods here. Um, A lot of them moved from Mexico 20, 30 years ago. They're here legally. And uh, they're very concerned that these cartels are now moving into their neighborhoods here, Westminster, Thornton, uh, Brighton. Uh, They're very concerned. So we need to get control of our border.
0: Briefly back to Trump, would you accept an endorsement from him?
1: Look, I, I've been very, very vocal about who I want endorsements from, and it's the Colorado voter. I, I'm, I'm focused on Colorado. I'm focused on Coloradans. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to Mar-a-Lago to get Trump's endorsement, but I'm not going to Texas to get George W's either. I'm focused on Colorado, and so uh, I, I want to let the Colorado voter weigh in on, on Joe O'Day. I'm running my campaign here, and I'm going to make sure that I do the right thing for Colorado.
0: In its endorsement, the Gazette newspaper described you as having the potential to be incumbent Senator Michael Bennett's, quote, worst nightmare. And Democratic-aligned groups like Progress Now and Democratic Colorado are running campaigns to help your opponent win the Republican nomination. What do you make of that?
1: Well, first off, it's criminal. Uh, the ads that uh, that they've—the the flyers that they've sent out, nobody's nobody signed— at the bottom as who paid for them and that's that's actually a violation of our federal election laws. I've sued uh the mailhouse that uh is is sending these out and I've also filed uh uh a, a, a grievance with the um federal election commission and we also sent letters to all of the uh DAs across the, the state asking for them to step in. Um I think the Democrats are worried about my candidacy. That's all I can say. If they're going to put $10 million into a race to make sure they can run against my opponent instead of me, I guess I've probably got them worried because I'm talking about inflation. I'm talking about the price of gas. I'm talking about 30% hike in crime. And those are the things that Colorado voters are talking about today. And so I'm going to hold Michael accountable. I'm going to hold the policies accountable and I'm going to win this November. I'm, I'm fired up.
0: Now, your opponent has accused you of, as you've said about him, flip-flopping, um, having voted for the $1.1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure plan, which passed the U.S. Senate with support from every Democrat and 19 Republicans and was signed by President Joe Biden. What is your response to that?
1: Well, I haven't flip-flopped. I, I said day one when that bill came out that I would have voted for it. And, and so did he, – he left that off of the mailer though. He, he forgot to talk about the 19 Republicans that would have voted for it. Uh, Trump ran his campaign and one of his things he was going to solve while he was in, in office was infrastructure. And at the time Trump was in place, he would have spent more than the $1.2 trillion. The other thing people need to understand is that a majority of that $1.2 trillion is actually HUTF. It's highway trust fund money. It's taxes that have been collected at the gas pump. That's what, uh, that's what pays for infrastructure. So he's distorted it, um, and I'm not going to back down. I still would have voted for infrastructure. I believe in a small, efficient government that supports law and order, our COPs. It supports our military, and it supports our assets, um, you know, people in, in Colorado drive around roads that, uh, are, are 50 years old and some of them are in really bad shape and you can't, uh, turn your, your house over to your kids with a roof that leaks. You've got to fix the roof. And so I, I've been an advocate that we fix our infrastructure and, and I'll continue to be an advocate for that.
0: What news sources do you rely on? Where do you get your news?
1: Um, I kind of look at a lot of different things. I, I, I read uh, different newspapers. I, I try and read a diverse amount of things. I, I watch Fox. I watch a little bit of CNN. I watch uh, 9, 7, 4. Um, I, I feel like you need to, in this day and age, you, you need to broaden your approach or you're, you're going to get into an echo chamber that you can't get out of. And so uh, I like to I like to really, I like a lot of reading.
0: As we wrap up on a lighter note, one of the questions we're asking candidates is to share the name of a book they're currently reading or one they've previously read that has had a great impact on their life. What would that be for you?
1: I read a lot of Western Horseman magazine, if that's in, and I like the stories in there. Um, a lot of them are about our culture and our past cowboy culture. Uh, those are the, those are the type of articles that I enjoy to read.
0: Or maybe you watch reality TV.
1: No. <laughs> no reality TV. No, okay. Not really. but I'm Duly big, noted. I'm a big Avs fan. I'll tell you that. I'm a huge Avalanche fan. Uh, it's going to be fun to watch these guys. Uh, hopefully they'll close out here in the in the next week and, w- and we'll have a Stanley Cup here in Colorado.
0: Joe, thanks for joining us.
1: Shandra, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on today and I uh, look forward to talking to you again after uh, the primary and and uh, we get uh, get this race heated up and uh, directed at Michael Bennett.
0: Joe O'Day is a Republican candidate for U.S. Senate. We spoke last Thursday. Tomorrow, we'll hear from his primary opponent, State Representative Ron Hanks. Election Day is Tuesday, June 28th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
3: If you're looking to get rid of a car, running or not, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is simple. All you need is the title. We'll take care of the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Donating your car is a powerful way to support the news and music you value. Make a difference by donating your car to CPR. Start on the support page at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Tomorrow, the best books of the year will be named in the Colorado Book Awards. One of the nominees explores the history of healers along the U.S.-Mexico border. They're called curandaros. CPR's Rachel Estabrook spoke with author Jennifer Koshatka seaman
4: So set it up for us. What geographic area are we zooming in on and about when are we talking about?
2: So we are looking at basically the US Mexico borderlands, so northern Mexico, Texas, Arizona, California, the US Southwest but closer to the border, and the time period is the turn of the 20th century, so late 1800s to the early 1900s, the Gilded Age um in the US or the
4: Porfiriato in Mexican history. The Porfiriato, named after the president of Mexico at the time, some would say dictator, Porfirio Diaz. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so about these healers, can you tell us one story of a cure that demonstrates how curanderos heal illnesses or injuries that seem incurable?
2: Yes. So the story I'll I'll share is one that I I write about in the book. And um, Teresa Urrea was known for using her hands to heal, which is— quite common for a lot of curanderos but particularly for her, her hands were kind of known to have this really magnetic healing power. And so the first recorded cure of hers was a young um, indigenous girl um, from Mexico who had sort of a slight deformity. One leg was shorter than the other and she couldn't walk well. And so as recorded, the story goes, the, they her parents brought her to Teresa Urea. She laid on hands on the legs and sort of manipulated and massaged the leg. And she got up and walked perfectly. So Using the hands to heal, and this idea that power comes from the hands, whether that's from God or some supernatural power, that was really a major part of her healing. But does do lots of different things to heal, using herbs, pills, all kinds of things.
4: Yeah, we're going to so, talk more about that. Um, had, had this girl gone to see other doctors first?
2: According to the research I did, this was just kind of a standalone story, So, um, but but oh, that's a great question because a lot of the stories that come about when people talk about curanderos is they've tried other doctors that have failed them or they have an incurable illness. And so sometimes a curandero is approached as sort of a last resort, you know, kind of like going to a shrine, a miraculous healing, but often just the Kuotendau is the preferred choice, um, you know, because of the cultural re- relevancy and um, the success of their
4: healing. People traveled really long distances, sometimes across the US Mexico border to seek out these healers. Of course, this was before cars and airplanes, so patients right. were going on these long pilgrimages and waiting days to be seen sometimes. Who were the patients generally, and and what does history tell you about why they went to such lengths to seek out curanderos? In the particular period that I'm studying, or I look at in the book, and these two healers,
2: they were sort of famous in their communities, you know, celebrities, you might say, and so that attracted people to go to see these particular healers that were seen as having this extra special gift or don. I think about pilgrimages that the faithful take to like shrines or um, you know to particular cathedrals that 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 or any kind of uh, spiritual pilgrimage. So in some ways, some of these stories are that kind of story, it's worth it because this person is so powerful, so blessed by God that they that they have this gift of healing and then these stories spread, the stories of success, which builds up the sort of legitimacy and the power of the healer.
4: Hmm. Um, and you mentioned Teresa Urrea at the beginning yes. and the mm-hmm. other healer that you are referring to is Don Pedrito Jaramillo. Both of them, I think in your book, you talk about serving a lot of indigenous people and so I was curious if part of the reason that they were going to see these healers is because there was some sort of discrimination going on with the established medical, quote unquote, professionals not serving those people. I'll speak more to Teresa Urrea on that topic
2: because that's Uh, of the context of many of her adherents were Yaqui or Mayo indigenous people of of northwestern Mexico. And so she appealed to them, I would argue for a couple of reasons. Number one, she was part indigenous. So the kind of medicine she practiced, Cuanderismo has these indigenous roots. So it was something familiar to them. Also, she was political and she was outspoken, um, speaking against the Diaz government, who was actively trying to dispossess indigenous peoples in northwestern Mexico of their land. And so here's this woman that they recognize as one of them in part, but also who is an advocate for them and saying, you don't have to give your land to the government. I think that's really the power and the appeal of her as a querendera to that indigenous population in Mexico.
4: Interesting. You know, you talked about herbs and the, the laying of hands that she did. Right. Coranderismo is a blend of that sort of herbal medicine and also Catholicism, which I find really interesting. How do Teresa Urrea, Don Pedrito, how do they explain their abilities to heal? What do they attribute it to? I don't have words uh, from
2: Don Pedrito, but what his adherents would say, those that knew him, would say that it's a gift from God called the Don. And so it's very much this sort of you know, Catholic uh, belief and a special gifting coming from God, and that the power of the healer is really God working through them, or the Virgin working through them, and it really does come from the the Catholicism that the Spaniards brought with them, um, and then indigenous peoples, and then you know, there's these, and then even uh, enslaved Africans um, in Latin America. So you have this kind of three way, these threads um, that are woven together in that colonial period but it changes and kind of grows through time. And so for these two healers, both were believed to heal through the power of God. Um, Mm -hmm. But they were both outside the Catholic
4: Church. They're both not recognized as saints by the Catholic Church um, at all. And they have those indigenous traditions of how to use plants and things like that. Yes. In addition to that. Absolutely. Feeling like they're messengers of God or tools of God.
2: Yes, very much a kind of both of those things. Yeah, so it's like a faith healing and an herbal healing mixed together.
4: Hmm. And the listener may recognize the name Teresa Urrea. She's the subject of a historical fiction book called The Hummingbird's Daughter, which was critically acclaimed and is fantastic in my opinion. I saw the author of that book was an advisor to your book as well.
2: Luis Urrea, yes, he's a wonderful genius writer and a very, very generous uh, scholar himself. And he also wrote The Queen of America, which is this like kind of part two about Teresa Urrea, which is also really great.
4: Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting you noted that in some cases, a patient's belief that they could be cured was no doubt part of the reason that they felt cured. And that can be true of all sorts of medicine, including, quote unquote, we think of modern medicine. But How much of the curandero's ability to heal with plants and dirt and touching do you think is because of this belief and positive thinking on behalf of the patients?
2: I think it's a it's definitely a combination. I definitely wouldn't say that it's only belief. I think that's a part of any healing you you're going to see a doctor that you've heard good things about, you know, and so your body is preparing that this is going to be a great experience. and I think it's similar with the with these popular healers, but they're skilled. It isn't simply or only this kind of you know supernatural gift that's definitely a part of it but it's also both of the healers i study and healers i've talked to have skills they understand herbs they understand the body they've been healing often they've been, all been apprenticed by someone and have healed for a long time so these healers have science they have knowledge, right? They're not just, you know, as the Mexican government would call Teresa Urrea, as when they attacked her in, in the papers and in other documents, she's just a fanatic. I find completely the opposite that these healers were really respected and popular because they were efficacious that their their cures were successful. And again, it's both
4: things. You've alluded to the fact that Don Pedrito and Teresa were both considered threats by the Mexican and U.S. governments. Could you say more about why they were treated that way? So, yes, absolutely. Um, Teresa
2: Urrea was kicked out of Mexico in 1892 because she was speaking out against the government. Um, so... Advocating for some sort of revolution. Advocating for revolution. So I, I put Teresa Urrea in the context of pre-revolutionary movements. Like the the, the Flores Magón brothers, for example, we know about the, you know, the Magonistas and the PLM. They crossed the border. They were kicked out of Mexico because of their very explicit critique of the Diaz regime. She was doing the same thing. She wants to really rebuild a new kind of Mexico, and she has a whole cohort, um, her father and others, that follow them across the border, and they publish newspapers that Talk about her healing, but also talk about the wrongs that the Diaz government is committing. And she's a healer and she's a spiritual, and she talks about spirituality as well, which is different um, than maybe the anarchist and sort of really anti clerical liberals, of which she's part of that context as well.
4: And it's so interesting because she doesn't seem to have any other motive. Like she's not making money off of her curanderismo. She's very ideologically pure, and of course, I'm very. I love her.
2: I'm very taken with my subject, and I've been critiqued when I was a graduate student when I was working on this. You know, my advisors were like, "You know, you need to be analytical," and I, I am analytical. But she really is a fascinating woman and a woman to be admired. That there was this kind of ideological purity. She cared for the poor and the most oppressed in Mexico, which were poor indigenous people. She spoke against really a government that. In many cases, killed and lynched Yaquis, and 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 so she was. She saw the kind of wrongs that were happening in that world, and she wasn't afraid to speak out against them. The way she speaks about, you know, renewing Mexico through the kind of spirituality that she practiced, I think, is very unique. And, and as I said, very very pure. Yeah, and um, I'm
4: speaking to that. I mean, they called her a saint. They called her Santa yeah. pa- Teresa.
2: The people, a people saint. The church, she was very anti-clerical. I mean, very critical of the church because the church in Mexico at this
4: time was very – the institution of the Catholic church was very much aligned with Diaz. You write about how some of the opposition to Teresa and Don Pedrito was rooted in racism. How did they fight against that? That's a great question, Rachel. Um, And that's one of the things that it's not –
2: ever explicitly said in their words but you see it in the context so this is the turn of the century this is the time of you know of segregation and and, and Jim Crow South and white supremacy and whiteness is what everyone's aspiring to. Um, And so in the writings about her and Don Pedrito by Anglo newspaper writers and newspapers in the United States, they'll write about the throngs of Mexicans that will come to them or indigenous people, kind of the huddled masses, the throngs um, that she heals and in a kind of a dismissive way. But then they'll have these you know, elite figures from these from towns, and they'll give this. You know, it's typically a white guy, and that and the kind of the the narrative kind of goes. She also healed so and so person, um, known to be the owner of this business, and everyone knows him. So there must be something there. So that's this hmm. kind of way in which, oh, if a white person is healed, we give that person a name, and that legitimizes her power. But all of these. People that aren't white that she heals, they're just, who knows, they're fanatics, they're very dismissive, similar kinds of things. Also in Mexican newspapers, the same kinds of ideas that U.S. racism had you had in Mexico, but it was more along the lines of sort of indigeneity. And she was specifically calling it out. She was specifically calling it out. The Mexican government, they followed her when she crossed the border, and that's part of where I did research was all these files. And um, they hated the fact that U.S. newspapers would write about her because when they wrote about her and she'd be interviewed, she'd... And they'd ask her about, you know, these these rebellions, these cross-border rebellions um, that her name was invoked in. Um, and she'd talk about – she's like, I'm just saying the truth. The government does these things in Mexico. And you could just see Diaz and his, you know, cohort going, ah, we've got to silence her because this is making us look bad. Because there was a really good relationship between Diaz and the U.S. government. Lots of money, right? Lots of, you know money investment u.s investment in mexico which is what diaz wanted
4: which is why he was you know one of the reasons he was dispossessing yaqui land we've been talking about these two historical figures who died more than a century ago but curanderismo is still alive how many people would you estimate were practicing curanderismo at any given time right because you zoom in on these two people but were there more Lots more. So, yeah, my research looks, again, at these two kind of lives,
2: although absolutely I've spoken to healers um, that are practicing today and then came across other healers in my research. But what my hunch is, based on this research I've done, there's lots and lots of curanderos and curanderas. You know, I've had students share with me that they have family members that practice this tradition um, and things like that. So it's very much alive
4: today. And, and it was then, hmm. The central argument of your book is that these two people, and I imagine other curanderos too, should be remembered as more than folk heroes. What is their legacy then? How would you sum it up? Their
2: legacy is they are were a part of the, of history. Their coenderismo was a part of the history of the turn of the century, the two healers that I look at. And that history is about the rise of state power, but also the resistance to that state power and how these cultural practices survived, right, even as you have these kind of dominant Hegemonic powers coming into the borderlands, for example. And I think there are examples of a really just on its own, just a beautiful practice that um, is part of Latinx, Mexican American communities that it should be celebrated. I think in the history around that and how it's healed individual bodies, how it's also healed the social body. Again, both of these healers healing at a time of white supremacy, and Don Pedrito. The area that he healed in in South Texas and the time period he healed in was a time when the Texas Rangers were, were lynching Mexicans. So here is this cultural practice that people are coming to from miles to be healed by him at a time when being Mexican is dangerous. And so I think that is something, right, that he was there to strengthen, to revitalize those communities, not to hide them. Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank you. Historian Jennifer Koshaka-Seaman
0: is a lecturer at Metropolitan State University of Denver. She spoke with CPR's Rachel Estabrook. Her book is called Borderlands Corundaros. It's up for a Colorado Book Award tomorrow in the biography category. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
3: Denver's first drinking fountains were not connected to plumbing. In the early 20th century, they operated from individual storage reservoirs filled regularly from horse-drawn tanks. Better to drink water from a fountain than a polluted creek. But there was a problem. Water running off people's lips and out their mouths as they drank, ran right back into the storage tank to be slurped up by the next thirsty user. That all changed in the 1940s under Dr. Florence Rena Sabin. When she was in her 70s, Dr. Sabin travelled across the state on her own dime to get support for health care reforms that ultimately cut Denver's tuberculosis rate by half. Dr. Sabin's efforts led to cleaner streets, fewer rats, better milk, and fresh, clean water for drinking fountains and the state. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Sheets and Giggles. This is
0: Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. An interesting group of boxcar racers, little kids, gathered in Colorado Springs for the Pikes Peak Soapbox Derby. CPR's Tony Gorman takes us there.
5: The weather wasn't the only thing heating up on a recent Sunday. Young racers blazed down to track on Costilla Street in box cars made of nothing but wood and wheels powered by gravity. Three, and and up. Up. Local veteran racer Daxton Kimsey, age 9, knows what a car needs to compete at a high level.
3: Uh, you have to make sure your brake is moving, you have to make sure your steering is working correctly. You have to make sure that the weight is the correct amount of weight you need.
5: Loveland's Hannah Perez was fascinated with the opportunity to race. I've
3: wrote, I've ridden go-karts before, so it kind of inspired me with the
5: experience. Her family teamed up to build a loner car. Her mom Adrian says the 11-year-old learned a lot from the experience
3: and it taught her a little bit about, you know, um, the dynamic of you know, racing and the steering wheel that's, she's 11 years old, she has a ride.
5: Madison Kirsten hopes the Derby will jumpstart a career in mechanics she found inspiration through math at her school.
1: Since it's a school run car and there's a window at her school that has a bunch of mathematical symbols and everything, so I got my inspiration off of that and our mascots also. Local.
5: At the end of the day, it was a family affair as Centennial's Ethan Elson beat out a huge field including his brothers Carson and Blake to win the stock division.
4: Awesome! <laughs> Big family road trip coming.
5: Local rookie Alex Fields won the super stock division. He had the race three times in the final round to win it all it was something he described as nerve-wracking it's great i mean me and my dad have been working on this for a while so it just feels good elson and fields move on to the all-american soapbox derby in akron ohio tony gorman cpr news
0: thanks for joining us today and
4: to the colorado matters team
5: tyler bender carl bielick anthony cotton pete kramer
4: Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher,
5: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes,
4: Carla Jimenez,
5: Pedro Lumbrano,
3: Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner.
0: And I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.